0: Our text this morning is Hebrews 7, verses 11 through 17. And again, these are part of those hard words that um, the writer was talking about. Hard to explain things about Melchizedek. I've tried to simplify it. I trust the Lord will help us with that. Hebrews 7, verse 11, we read this. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law... What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? Lots there that we will unpack for sure. Verse 12, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of faith. Melchizedek. Well, in the past few months, our family has had a new guest in our home. It's a permanent guest in our home. We purchased a bird recently for Hannah, the animal lover in our house. And uh, she, is, she is thrilled to have a pet in the house. And secretly, she's hoping that Dad will let her get a bigger pet, like a dog. Though Dad's not quite sure, actually. We'll see, Hannah, what takes place. But anyway, we bought a parallette, which is um, it's a it's a small species of parrot. It looks a lot like a parakeet, but it has the intelligence of a parrot, or so they say. We'll see. We need to train it, I guess. We have begun the process of um, not not very well, but we have begun the process of trying to teach uh, trying to teach this bird to speak. And so what I did was I, I said, Hannah, maybe you ought to record something um, for this MP3 player to maybe, you know, that you want him to say. And so I had Hannah record this. I love Hannah. So kind of our plan is this, is that if if the bird, and we named him Kevin after the bird in up is what we named him. I'm not sure whose idea that was, but... It always evokes a laugh whenever I say that. But the the idea is is that you know like um, with the bird you repeat something over and over. Avon y- says she had a bird growing up, and uh, she said, "Kirk lollipop," is that what the bird said? And the bird also said, "Kirk come up and see me sometime," right? And so we're we're hoping maybe that we can enjoy some of that. And so we want the bird, uh, Kevin, to say this. And so what I did one time while they were off and away. I I took this mp3 player, and I put it in Hannah's room. I love Hannah. And I just set it there, and I shut the door, and I left to work. I love Hannah. And the kids were off to school that day, and the family was gone. I love Hannah. For nine hours, this is what happened. (laughs) I love Hannah. I love Hannah. Now, we've only done that once because... And I'll I'll quote Hannah myself. She says, Hannah feels sorry for the bird. (laughs) That's what she says. Well, I feel sorry for you at Rock Valley Bible Church. Because in preaching through the book of Hebrews, the past five months or so, we have preached the same thing again again and again and again and again and again. And though this bird may have heard, I love Hannah, some 8,000 times in that day, you've heard it over this last five months or so, probably 20 messages. Uh, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And that's all that you have heard. Oh, Oh, sure, I haven't simply said that, like, I love Hannah, I love Hannah, I love Hannah. I, you know we've used different texts we just marched through Hebrews verse by verse phrase by phrase and talking about it there using different illustrations using different instructions different passages different thoughts but the message has been the same it's hardly wavered for 5 months Jesus is better And the reason really is quite simple why that message come up again and again and again is because the writer of the book of Hebrews has brought that message up again and again and again and again. It's almost like if Jesus were, or the writer of Hebrews was playing the piano, it would sound like this Jesus is better, Jesus is better. He's, better, he's better, He's better, He's better, He's better, He's better. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Now, there have been some warning passages which have said, since Jesus is better, let's press on. But mostly, He's better. What are the things He's better than? Why don't you just shout some out? What are the things He's better than? He's better than Melchizedek. Exactly. We saw that last week. What else, Andrew? better than the high priest, exactly. What else do we see? Yes. Better than Moses, better than Moses. Michelle? Angel. Better than angels, yep. <inaudible> better than Abraham, yep. Others, we about there? Missing a couple. That's okay. He's Better than Moses. Better than Joshua. Better than the prophets because his revelation is better. And today we're going to see that he's got a better priesthood. He's better than all the priests of the Old Testament. And I just plead with you. Don't get tired of these messages. They will only serve you in the end. I do believe that those who have the most clear view of God live the most fruitful, productive, God honoring lives than anybody. What allowed Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel to preach so fervently against so much opposition? They had a clear view of God. What is it that allowed Abraham to leave Ur, the Chaldeans, to go to a land where, where God said go and he didn't even know where he was going? I think it's because he had a clear view of God. What is it that allowed Moses to consider the reproach of Christ as greater riches than the, the treasures of Egypt? Why? He had a clear view of God. He had a clear view of His reward. Why? What is it that gave Paul his boldness for Christ? I think it's his clear view of Jesus that he saw on the road to Damascus. And so I just say, let this message sink into you that Jesus is better. You put anything out there and Jesus is better than that. And I do believe that as it sinks in, it will have application in many, many areas of your lives. I was just thinking as I was singing there and thinking about the Lamb and and the crucifixion of Christ. I said, you know, is this helping us? And you know what? I believe it is. Because if you were away from that message for three, four, five weeks, away for two months, I believe your life would be radically different than if you hear that week in, week out. We always need to be reminded of Jesus. Because when we see the grandeur of Jesus, it is more difficult for us to sin. And when we see the greatness of Jesus, it gives us a joy in serving Him because He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we know the forgiveness of Jesus that comes through Him as the slain Lamb for us. It keeps us from depression and despair and encourages us to press on. We see the glories of Jesus. It's more difficult to turn away from Him. But it's easier to press on when we have that goal, just like that runner there. Running and pressing on, going on towards Jesus. And so I believe this. If you grasp what the writer is saying, these glimpses of the greatness of Jesus will have far-reaching... Practical effects upon our lives. This morning we're going to be talking about the priesthood. Now, it might be your tendency just to to tune out because you might say, well, what do I have need for a priest? I mean, the only priests that I know of are in the Roman Catholic Church. And we don't have priests at Rock Valley Bible Church. Priests were something for those guys in the Old Testament. We don't need priests today. There's a reason why we don't have priests at Rock Valley Bible Church, right? We don't need them, right? And I say, you're partially right. Yes, we don't need priests today. That is, we don't need human priests. But you need a priest to bring you to God. You can't just come to God alone. You need to have someone to, to take you to God. And we have a priest. We have Jesus Christ. He is a priest. So when, when someone says, and oftentimes talking with Catholics, tendency might be, oh, you got the priest and that brings you to God. And, and we say, well, we don't have a priest. Yes, we do. Jesus Christ is our priest because we need a priest. See, the role of a priest was to bring us to God. Prophets were the people who brought God to the people. Priests are the people who brought people to God. And we can't come to God alone. Nobody can see the face of God and live. All who have tasted the presence of God all cowered in fear, right? They they backed away. They fell on their face. Because of the fear of God. And we need someone to bring us. We need a mediator. And that's who Jesus Christ is. He's bridged the gap between us and God. And that's the message of the priesthood. And this morning, we're going to spend some time examining here the priesthood of Jesus. And I do believe this. If you you catch this, you'll walk away rejoicing you have a heavenly priest to bring you to God in fullness of joy. Let's look here. The perfect... Priesthood. Point number one, verses 11 and 12. The priesthood of Jesus is better because it's a perfect priesthood. Verses 11 and 12. Now, he says, If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the, like, to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? Now, that's a big sentence. It is one question. And it's kind of like a riddle. Maybe you remember the day when uh, Jesus was being hounded by the Pharisees. And, and they brought various people to him to trap him in what he said. They asked him some difficult questions. Like the first ones, the Herodians came with the Pharisees and they said, Tell us now, is it lawful to pay taxes or not? And remember Jesus' response? He said, Show me denarius whose likeness is on there. It said, Caesar. He said, Give to Caesar what Caesar is, and the things are God's. And then the Sadducees came who didn't believe in the resurrection... And and they concocted this story about this woman who had seven brothers as as husbands. But they all died off, and so they all, all had... And they said, this resurrection stuff is silly. I mean, in the resurrection, whose husband is she going to have? But she had seven of them. And Jesus says, you don't understand... There's no marriage in the resurrection. We're like angels. And then he said, you don't understand the power of God. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not the God, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Arguing on the tense of the verb that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are still very much alive. They've been resurrected and then someone came and said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus was trapped there too. If, um, you know, you think about the, the tables of the commandments, the ten commandments, if Jesus would pick one, why not the other? Did God have priorities in there? And so what Jesus quotes the greatest commandments, He backs away from both of those. And, and He says, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbors as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. And He didn't pick one of the ten commandments. He picked other commandments from the law and the Pentateuch, just to show just how how different his perspective is in thinking. And then when those questions were done, Jesus turned the table. Perhaps you remember that. He asked them a question. He said, alright guys, you've asked me questions trying to trap me. I think I passed. Let me give you a question. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Easy question. Whose son is he, everyone? Son of God. Son of of David. David. Exactly right. Good job, Andrew. He's a son of David. And then came the difficult question. How then does David, in the Spirit, call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? If David calls Him Lord, how is He His Son? To that question, the Jews were, were dumbfounded. Really, they had no answer. In the Jews of the day, the Father is greater than the Son. Our day as well. The, the Father doesn't say, My Lord to the Son. Only the Son says, My Lord to the Father. But it's plainest day in Scripture. Jesus quoted from Psalm 110, verse 1, in which David, speaking to his son, who is the Messiah, calls Him my Lord. And so here's a conundrum. How does David, whose whose son, whose descendant will be the Messiah, how does David call the Son Lord? The only way is if there's something more special about this Son. And we see that come to fruition. What Christ is arguing for is His deity. He's something more than a human. He is the God-man. And the Jews would never admit that. So they remained silent. It says in Matthew 22, the next verse, says, No one was able to answer Him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask Him another question. I think the Jews knew full well that they were trapped. But they just, we don't know, and didn't say anything. They couldn't come to admit that Messiah was anything else than a a mere man to deliver them. They couldn't be God in the flesh. It couldn't be Emmanuel. So they chose to be silent. But Psalm 110 is one of those passages that allude to the deity of Christ Something the Jews rejected and still reject to this day. Even though it's plain in the Old Testament writings. Three verses later, we read another verse in Psalm 110, verse 4. This caused the Jews to scratch their head as well. David, again speaking of the Messiah, said this, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, You, Messiah, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, So I can imagine, just as Jesus had this conversation with the Pharisees about Psalm 110, verse 1, He could have also had this conversation with the Pharisees about Psalm 110, verse 4, which goes exactly the same way. He could have said this, Alright, Mr. Pharisee, what do you think about the priest? Whose son is he? Everyone, whose son is the priest? Levi. Levi. The son of Levi is the priest. And then He would have asked the following... The follow-up question. How does David then in the Spirit call him priest, saying the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek? If the Messiah is David's son, how can he be priest as well? Because David was from Judah and not from Levi. How can that be? And I think had Jesus asked the Pharisees the same question, silence would have come upon them, just like in Psalm 110, verse 1. I don't think that they're willing to admit another priesthood that was different than the priesthood of the Levites. Actually, they wouldn't admit a better a priesthood which was better than that of the Levites. And I think what the, the writer of the Hebrews is doing Right here in uh, verse 11, perfection coming through the Levitical priesthood. I think what he is arguing, he's he's equipping his readers to answer the Jews who are trying to pull these people back. Remember, this is written to the Hebrews. This is written to Jewish people who come into the church, and he's going to have other Jews trying to pull them back. They're saying, hey, look, we got the priests over here, and we got the sacrifice, and we got the temple. What do you got? You got nothing. You got this imaginary priest who died. He's not, we, got, we got this. And he's saying, okay, when, when someone's arguing, a Jewish person's arguing to go back to the priest because we don't have a priest, why don't you just take them to Psalm 110, verse 4. Take them to their own Scripture and open it up and say, hmm, if Messiah is David's son, not of the tribe of Levi, how can he be a priest? Because it says clearly the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, is what he says. Okay, now with that, I think we can understand the riddle of verse 11. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, where all the priests were, and on the basis of that priesthood came the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, as quoted in Psalm 110, verse 4? And not to be designated according to the order of Aaron. And this text is saying... Why the need for another priesthood? The reason is that the Levitical priesthood was flawed. You could never obtain perfection through Levitical priesthood. And the writer of the book of Hebrews makes this point over and over and over again. We see it for the first time here in verse 11. We see it in verse 19. Look down there. The law made nothing perfect the law, the the sacrifices the priest offered again and again and again, that made nothing perfect. Over in chapter 9, verse 9, it says this, is that both gifts and sacrifices which are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. In other words, sacrifices are offered which... Which, which only deal with cleansing of the body. They never make the worshiper perfect inside. Verse, Chapter 9, verse 13 of Hebrews. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh only, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. See, the the sacrifices of of goats and bulls and heifers, those just just sprinkle the flesh. They don't deal with the conscience. They're, They're an imperfect priesthood, but the priesthood of Jesus is perfect. Or, chapter 10, verse 1, the law. Since there's only a shadow of the good things to come, Not the very former things can never by the same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. In in other words, you you have these sacrifices again and again and again and again and again and they never make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, if they had made perfect, verse 2, they would have ceased to be offered. Isn't that the way it is? If you do something and it's perfect, you don't have to do it again. But when it's not perfect, you've got to do it again and again and again. And again, right? mothers, you labor so well to fix dinners for your family. And you fix these dinners, and then you serve them to the family. And as hard as you try, you try to give it, and it, it satisfies for a little bit. But is that a perfect meal? It's not, because they're going to be hungry again in a little bit. And so you try again. <laughs> Let's get this. The, the repeated aspect of that shows it's not perfect. Oh, it tastes good. It's not perfect. Verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time and time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Right? They can only, only cover them. They can't take them away. As I spoke about earlier. When it's perfect, you can step away from it. And such is the priesthood of Jesus. He offered Himself once for sins and once as a perfect sacrifice. Chapter 10, verse 10. That's the point he's leading up to. These big verses in chapter 10, you can highlight them. Verses 10, 14, and 18. By this will, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One offering of Jesus once for all. It's a perfect offering. We've been sanctified permanently. Verse 14, for by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering Jesus did. Through that one offering, He perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Such is the greatness of the priesthood of Jesus. That He offers one sacrifice and it's done. Verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Jesus doesn't have to come again. Once it was done. It means that His priesthood is a perfect priesthood. Now, one of the implications of this perfect priesthood is that much is changed. Look down at chapter 7, verse 12, that next verse here. He already alluded to this parenthetically. He said in verse 11, parenthetically, on the basis of the political priesthood, the people received the law. And now, verse 12, he says, when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. With a new priest, Jesus, comes a new law. We're no longer bound to the Mosaic Law, because I think we have a new law it comes in Jesus. Rather, we are bound to the Law of Christ, as Paul says in Galatians six, verse two, which I think is best expounded as a Law of Love. Let's talk about the Law a little bit. The Law was imperfect. Oh, it was glorious, as I think as Isaiah forty two says. The Law was glorious; it was great, but it was imperfect, and it was never intended to bring us to God. Nobody's ever justified by the works of the Law. The priest, in offering up the sacrifice again and again and again, shows us that we're not justified by that law. Rather, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, and the law teaches us that, that we need help in coming to God, explains the priest's role in that, and explains and shows the utter insufficiency of it. And really, in the end, there's much to be unpleasant. There's much that's unpleasant about the law. The law is a bit like my trip to the dentist this Friday been two years since I've been to the dentist, and I came this Friday, and um, I experienced the law. This hygienist, bless her heart, she was pretty sweet, but she was the law coming upon me. From the start of my visit, she's telling me over and over again what was all wrong about my brushing habits and flossing habits. You ever had this experience before? It's kind of like little law people, but this time... Particularly more than ever, I've got sensitivity in some of my teeth to cold and sweets. And she told me, don't brush up and down, don't brush back and forth, only little circles. Not too hard, but not too soft either, because you need to get down there. She Said, oh, your gums, your gums healthy is one to four millimeters, but you're one to three millimeters, but you're four millimeters. Oh, you need to keep brushing more because bacteria will form in there, eat away at your tooth. So you need to floss every day. And um, there's one spot that's difficult because i got a bridge on some of my teeth. She said, oh, you have to floss there, that's for sure, every day. She made sure, oh, you got to come in. Every six months is what you really need to do so I can clean the tartar from your teeth. So I was finishing up. She gave me some final instructions. She said I should uh, purchase um, some special sensitive toothpaste to start using. She said I should purchase some uh, fluoride rinse I should use as well and and throughout my time on the chair, I'm just thinking about this. Can you give me a chance to talk? <laughs> you know, I'm can yeah, because your mouth is open. But I, I said, I was thinking, you know what? I, I, I do keep pretty good care of my teeth. I mean, I brush twice, three, four times every day. I don't floss as much as Yvonne does she, every night she does. I, I do about once or twice a week. It's gross, but I do some floss. But I, she didn't even ask me about my hygiene habits. And she didn't even commend me my hygiene habits. Rather, all she told me was the things ready to do. And as so I was finishing up, kind of, we're getting an appointment for six months from now. We're 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 finishing up, and my wife was there with me. She she's sitting there writing on this sticky pad, and uh, she says, "Yeah, I'm just writing up your homework for you." Whoever goes to the dentist to get homework? <laughs> but she wrote right here: sensitive toothpaste, act fluoride rinse brushing at the gum line, and use floss. It was the law. Yvonne's experience was a little bit different, though, when she had the hygienist. She didn't give her homework. She gave Yvonne some sensitive toothpaste, and she gave Yvonne toothbrushes, and is that what she gave? Just two of those? And helped her with some things. But I got the law lady, and she got somewhat of the, the grace lady. And that's what the law does. It just points out ways we've failed and it continues to condemn and condemn and condemn and really offers no hope. Um, and I say the hope that, that Christ brings is so much different than the law. And His law is so much, so much better. See, the law that we follow now that's been brought in, it says verse 12, when the priesthood is changed, there takes place a change of law also. The law has been changed basically as when Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors as yourself. That's kind of taken and dominated the law now. So all that we do ought to be motivated and generated by that. Because think about it. We no longer have to work to be justified before God. We no longer have to bring our sacrifices before God. That's all been done and accomplished. So you say, well, how, how how do you live? Well, we live out of love towards Him who's done it all for us. So why do we come to church each Sunday morning? Because we love Jesus, that's why. I'm not trying to merit anything or help anything, and we know that this is a way to help us love Christ more. Why do we read the Bible? It's because it's His love letter to us, and we love Him, so we're reading that love letter. Why do we pray? Because we love Jesus. Why do we give? We give because we love Jesus. Why do we love others? Because this is the new commandment that Jesus gives us, to love others. Why do we confess our sins? Because we love Christ. And we say that the things we've done are, are shameful and they're wrong and, and they've, you know, they've shown dishonor to you and I'm sorry and I confess that. And let's, let's agree on that. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. And then press on. Why do we share the Gospel with others? Because we want them to share in the love which we have found. That's the law we follow. And we follow this perfect law of liberty is what James says because we have a perfect priesthood. Well, second point. Not only do we have a perfect priesthood, we also have, point number two, a royal priesthood. This is 14, 13 and 14. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Now, in some ways, this is arguing for a priesthood other than the Aaronic priesthood. Um, But on the other hand, I thought there's a, a jewel here that we could see that it's no accident, I believe, that it's from the tribe of Judah that this priest comes. See, for priests, lineage was everything. If you were to be a priest, you had to prove who your mother was and who your father was and prove that they both were Levites. And if you couldn't prove that, you couldn't be a priest because you weren't from the Levites. Maybe you remember the days of the return from the exile. The Jews had been away in Babylon for 70 years. They returned and come back. Zerubbabel built the temple. All right? Who built the wall? Nehemiah built the wall. Who taught the law? Ezra taught the law. Good. They came back and they, reinstituted. they built this temple, reinstituted the sacrifices again. If you're going to reinstitute the sacrifices, what do you need? You need men from Levi and from his tribe. And, and so all the sons of Levi gathered together, but there were several men there who, who weren't quite sure if they were from Levi or not. I mean, when they were in the exile, that's where they always were. They always assumed, I mean, even before the exile, that's their family heritage. They always say like, I'm a Brandon. Oh, I'm a Levite. That's who I am. And they are over here. But, but when they got back, they said, Let, let's see if you all are Levites or not. And they searched the genealogical records And it was inconclusive. It didn't say, oh, you're from the tribe of Naphtali or oh, you're from the tribe of Benjamin. It it was inconclusive. And inconclusive said that they were considered unclean, excluded from the priesthood because they couldn't for sure trace their lineage to Levi. Because it was a big deal for the Jewish people. You had to be a Levite to be a priest. And so think about this. The Jewish people, when they think about embracing Christianity and this... This priest Jesus who's not a Levite. That's a problem for them. Because clearly Jesus was from the tribe of Judah is what verse 14 says. Listen, But there was was never a person from the tribe of Judah who served in the temple. The tribe of Judah was the tribe of kings. David was from the tribe of Judah. All the kings are from the tribe of Judah. And whenever we see a king attempting to offer sacrifice, you know what happened? Disaster. Disaster happened. Think about Saul. He was waiting for Samuel to come to offer the sacrifice. He got impatient. He offered the sacrifice himself. And then Samuel came along the road, came up to him and said, Saul, what have you done? You have acted foolishly. And he lost his kingdom. Because of that act, a king offering a sacrifice. When Uzziah became proud, he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest, along with 80 others, opposed the king Uzziah and said, You can't do this, O king. It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, for us, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. They said, 2 Chronicles 26.18, Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord. Josiah was enraged at them. Who are they to resist the king? If the king wants to offer up sacrifices, the king thinks he can offer up sacrifice, and the priest is saying, no king. And as they were arguing and debating back and forth, you remember what happened? Where? Right on his forehead. Leprosy started, started coming out. Right on his forehead. And he became a leper that day and lived the rest of his life cut off from the house of the Lord because he was a leper. Whenever a king offers a sacrifice, it's a disaster. And so, for these Christians claiming that we have Jesus who offered this sacrifice, but isn't Jesus from the line of Judah? Isn't He there? Isn't He from the tribe of... Isn't He where David comes from? And I I do think... They're they're saying this. You can't have a king-priest... And these believers being instructed, okay, when someone objects to that, you just take them back. Okay, let's deal with Psalm 110. <laughs> these Jewish people, let's not deal with Psalm 110. Let's not do that. But, but it's like the trump card. There's no accident that Psalm 110 is quoted more often than any other passage of the Old Testament, and the New Testament. It's like the trump card. It, it is. It's Davidic. It shows how he's the king. And it also shows how the Messiah not only is a king, but he's also the priest. Psalm 110 is all about the kingship of the Messiah. He would come and rule in the midst of His enemies. He would shatter other kings in the day of His wrath. And so here was this king being a priest. So you say, what about the other kings who offered sacrifice and rejected? Listen, if the Messiah was from the the tribe of Levi being a, a king, He couldn't really do that. It would be rejected. As it says over in chapter 8, verse 4, if Jesus were on the earth, He would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. He wouldn't be a priest. He's not a Levite. He wouldn't offer the Levitical sacrifices, but the sacrifices of Melchizedek are entirely different. And that's how you can get around this is because Jesus, the Messiah, is a priest, not according to the Levitical priesthood, which is imperfect, but according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Did I say that backwards? Not according to the priesthood of Levites who are imperfect. The priesthood of Melchizedek is a perfect priesthood. And as he's from the line of Judah, it makes his priesthood a royal priesthood. Third point, my last point this morning, before we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, hopefully this one will draw you right in to celebrating that together. Jesus isn't, the priesthood of Christ isn't only a better because a perfect priesthood, not only is a royal priesthood, it's also a worthy priesthood. And by this I simply mean that Jesus was a priest who was worthy of his priesthood. His life qualified him. Look at verse 15. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. we say saying is this. On the one hand, I mean, we can talk about Psalm 110, and, and it would all be theory and stuff, and we're anticipating, but it becomes clearer when someone else arises. And it is clearer if another priest arises, namely Jesus, according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. See, in the, in the Levitical system, it wasn't so much the character that qualified someone to be a priest. It was um, a lot of fleshly requirements. First of all, you had to be a Levite, like I've said. Um, on top of that, there were some other requirements. Um, just as the animals to be sacrificed need to be perfect. Quote, unquote, blemished, blemished, blem, unblemished on the outside. So also a priest needed to be unblemished on the outside as well. Lots of qualifications. A priest couldn't be blind or lame or have a disfigured face or deformed limb. He couldn't be hunchback or a dwarf. Lame like a midget. I'm not a dwarf, okay? 5'7 doesn't put me in dwarf category. I'm, I'm okay there. But He couldn't have a defect in his eye. They couldn't defile themselves by touching dead people. or They couldn't shave off the edge of their beards. They couldn't make any cuts in their flesh. You can read about many, many more. requirements, all external in Leviticus chapter 21. But they're all physical. They they deal with the physical lineage and the physical appearance. Little is mentioned regarding their character. And there were many priests throughout the, the history of Israel who were not righteous men. Maybe you can think of some. I'll just help you, right? very first one, sons of Aaron. You know, almost like Adam and Eve when they're created, sin happened instantly. You know, right? That first generation, those first people. Here we are, first generation of priests. That Aaron was consecrated as a priest and his sons, Nadab and Abihu. I believe it was their ordination day. very first time they offered up fire in the altar. They offered up strange fire, not accordance with the law. And you remember what God did? As the strange fire went up, the divine fire came down and consumed them. Nadab and Abihu, wicked kings from the start. A few generations later, Eli's sons were worthless men. Rather than sacrificing the animals that brought to them, they would poke their fork there into the kettle as they were boiling the, and they would take it out and eat it. Gorge themselves. Someone brings a sacrifice and the priest takes it. And they even bullied people to say, yes, we can do that because we're the priests. On top of that, they committed sexual sin with those women who served in the tent of meeting. Not unlike some of the Roman Catholic scandals today. Sexual sin abounded in these men. They refused the counsel of their father. There were wicked men in the priesthood. Towards the end of the Old Testament, Malachi wrote a scathing rebuke against the priests of this day. Listen to this. Malachi 2, verse 1. And now this commandment is for you, O priests. If you do not listen... And if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already because you're not taking it to heart. Right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and lift up His countenance towards you. The Lord give you peace. And really what he's saying is the Lord curse you. The Lord curse you. The Lord curse you is what He turned his blessing, their blessings into curses. Because the priests were evil. And then... Malachi puts forth what a priest should do. The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth. He's the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you've turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction." Priests of the Old Testament days were wicked. In the days of Jesus, how were the priests? Not very good. They made the house of the Lord into a house of business and commerce. I'm sure that those money changers and the sellers out there were just following the instructions of the priests. <laughs> if you only sell it for five shekels, what profit is that? But sell it for 15 shekels and then we get 10 shekels and we can become rich. I think that was alongside of what the priests were. The high priests, we know by name the time of Jesus, Annas and Caiaphas, were far from righteous men. They're politically motivated people who sought to do everything possible to find Jesus, the innocent man, guilty to put Him to death. But here's the thing. Jesus is totally different than the corruptness of the priests who are qualified only because of their physical lineage and appearance. He has become a priest, it says in verse 16, on the basis, according to, the power of an indestructible life. It has to do with the fact that Jesus in His life was indestructible. It couldn't be destroyed. Oh, well, the Pharisees and Sadducees attempted to destroy Him. After healing a man with a withered hand, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Him as to how they might destroy Him. Oh, they tried to destroy Jesus. And they sought everything they could to destroy Jesus. They looked for any weakness in Him. And they looked hard. They accused Him of being demon-possessed. And Jesus held back that. They accused Him of having broken the Sabbath. They accused Him of having been born of fornication. They accused Him of being a gluttonous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And to all these things, Jesus said, Wisdom is vindicated by our deeds." And the deeds of Jesus didn't match with any of their accusations against Him. He was indestructible. They tried to trap Jesus in what He said or what He did. Rare was the time that that, uh, someone came to Him, a religious person, genuinely. Though there are some. Nicodemus came by night. That's good. The rich young ruler, I think, had some authenticity coming to Him. But rare was the time. Most often they came with intent to destroy Him, questioning His every move. That was Matthew 22. We talked about earlier. Can we pay taxes? What about the resurrection? What's the greatest commandment? All trying to trap Jesus. Finally, they found a way to kill Jesus. But it wasn't in what he had said or done. It was done by stealth and deceit. When he was arrested, he came out with swords and clubs by night. And Jesus said, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. By stealth, by deceit. When they brought Jesus to trials late at night, so those who had the voice of reason were tucked away in bed. Even at the trial, they kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so they might put Him to death. And they had many witnesses come forth trying to destroy Jesus with their testimony of what He said or what He did. And the testimony of Scriptures, they couldn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, they got Him for the true charge. They, they claimed that He claimed to be the Messiah, which He did, which was exactly true. And so they killed Him for the right cause. You're the Messiah! He said, exactly right. That's blasphemy! And they put him up upon the ground. The only accusation they could have against him. Remember what it said above him when he died, right? What did it say? King of the Jews. You're like, exactly right! So even in his life, even when they destroyed him, his life really wasn't destroyed. Jesus said this. When he was walking, he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll build it up again. And of course, he wasn't talking about the temple He was talking about the temple of His body, is what John said. John chapter 2, verse 21. And indeed, three days later, He raised from the dead, which we'll celebrate next week in Resurrection Sunday. It testifies the indestructible life of Jesus. But Jesus was indestructible because of His purity and because of His righteousness. And that makes Him a worthy priesthood. They couldn't destroy Jesus because of the quality of His life. He was sinless. He was above reproach. He was impeccable. He was flawless. He was faultless, unlike so many of the priests before, which were filled with fault and sin and wickedness. The book of Hebrews affirms this on several situations, several verses. Chapter 2, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 14 speaks about this. But look down at chapter 7, how the chapter finishes up, verse 26. And by the time, wait, next week, we're going to be um, the resurrection revelation. My message, we're going to just speak. I've been working on memorizing Revelation, just so much there about the resurrection revelation. I thought that's what I want to preach on Easter. And then we're going to get back to Hebrews, and we're going to find, then that next week, two weeks from now, so many of these other things the perfection, the, the different order, the change of law, all are going to come up. But here is here's a situation 26 through 28 speaks about the purity of Christ. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Here's our high priest, he is holy. He is innocent. He is undefiled. He is separated from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he didn't have his sins. But he doesn't need to offer them up continually, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after law, appoints a son made perfect forever. You should see his purity coming out there, how he is a worthy priesthood. And see, it says in verse 28 that the Levitical priests are weak. But rather, we have a son that's been appointed by God by an oath. What it says in verse 17 it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So here, you need a priest to bring you to God, you need a priest. The answer is, who's your priest? Are you going to trust some sinful man like me? Like some Catholic priest to try to bring you to God? Are you going to go with the sinless God man? Are you going to go with the Lord Jesus Christ who is the worthy priest? Are you going to trust Him to bring you to God? Because He's the one that can. Well, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite the men who are going to come and serve that to, to come over there. The Lord's Supper is to commemorate the way that Jesus brings us to God. He brings us to God through His body. He brings us to God through His blood. It says in First Peter 2.24 that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 how He redeemed us with His precious blood. The body and the blood of Christ. That's how we come to God. The bread that we will eat of represents His body and the cup represents His blood. And he commanded all of His followers to obey Him and to eat and drink of it together. Now this is for those who believe it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. An unworthy manner says simply an unbelieving manner, or a manner where you're living in, in willful disobedience. And if that's you this morning, I just say don't, don't take, just let it pass. But if you love the Lord Jesus and He is your treasure and you're seeing week in week out how He is better and better, then take of it. It says in verse 28, But a man ought to examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So I just encourage us this morning to spend even a time, maybe bow your, bow your head, just even reflect upon your own life. This is a, a great opportunity for us to once again commemorate the, the life and death of Jesus, our great high priest, who offered himself and died for us. If you're believing in that, this is a time that we can just rejoice to remember there's nothing special about the bread, there's nothing special about the cup or the juice. There's symbols to commemorate and to remember the death of Christ, which is our hope. And how appropriate is it for us to do this morning on Good the, the Passion Week, as we anticipate even Good Friday before Resurrection Sunday. And so I just cause you to examine your life. There's sin in your life to confess. You give your life to the Lord. Give your life to the Lord. Really think and reflect upon the, the work of Christ. Repent of your sin and then celebrate the Supper with us. So Lord, I would pray as we do this again, may you help it not to be ritual for us, but may it stir our hearts afresh, a fresh love to Jesus. We saw today how much better he is than any other priest that's ever walked the planet. He is our better priest. He's the best. So, Lord, we we thank you. And I just would pray, even as my own soul is continually being stirred by how, how exact Scripture is in prophesying before the law of a better priest that would come, who was given before the law. Promises are given before the law which are better than the law itself. So may we see and just be enraptured by the greatness of Jesus. May be with us and commune with us in this time of worship. We trust in Your name. Amen.